culture is like the river, and then the, the rules or regulations you place are a little bit like the river building, like the dam. You know, you can impose some structure, but ultimately the culture is the river. And a good lawyer will, will be able to inspect the culture of, of the place and come up with a set of documents that people are actually going to use, right? Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinrake, a systems thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. Today I'm talking to Dave Inder Komar, an attorney and founder of two law practices, Komar Mole and nonprofit Just Atonement. Inder has an amazing ability to humanize law, approaching it with creativity and empathy to make policy something that people can use and help them navigate the changes organizations face today. In this episode, we talk about law and business and the workplace and how it can be a creative, generative function for businesses where people can thrive. We'll jump right into the conversation. You initially wanted to work at the at the international law level, and we, you do do some of that work. But on your website, you do explicitly call out that you focus a lot on on corporate law as well. What took you in that direction? Yes, that's a great question. So um, after I, I worked for four years at, at a big international law firm, again looking for avenues to do international legal work, and I, I was given uh, some opportunities, which were great. Um, I think when I got when I when I went out on my own. Uh, I was in San Francisco and I really wanted to um, give entrepreneurship a chance. And it was my first time being an entrepreneur and I really wanted to make the firm successful. I really wanted to have an independent practice and be able to take on the cases and issues that I mostly d- deeply cared about. And I also knew I had this pre-existing kind of skill set, right? And so what I did was just kind of listen to the market and listen to people who, who came to me who, who needed legal work done. And as it turned out, it was corporate legal work. And uh, that became the vehicle to actually grow and expand um, the business. And, and um, I guess like as things got more settled, like a few years in and stable, I, uh, I remembered or recalled this passion I had for international legal work. And I did start doing a lot of that through my um, for-profit practice. And then it, it got so big or it became so important, I actually decided at that point to, to set it up in a separate entity. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, in a separate nonprofit where we have 501c3 status and, and kind of do that work through there. So, yeah, so um, I kind of live a dual life, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like Batman. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> you are a bit like Batman, so, you know, given the, like, uh, the projects you've taken on. <laughs> yeah. So I do like my day job is, is, you know, doing working actually, but you know, which I'm also very passionate about because you know, I do get to work with some very exciting and um, very intelligent, super passionate people uh, who are involved in the corporate space, and and that's what I do, just to earn a living, and then um, you know we 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 power just atonement, the nonprofit work, you know uh, through the firm, and um, in that process we're we're actually able to be incredibly independent, and so um, which is a, a, basically the, the benefit of of having it set up like this is is we can submit paperwork to the United Nations, for example, and take positions that that maybe other organizations can't say, but we can say in good faith on certain topics. We can say, look, this needs to change or, or this this is a human rights issue and, mm. uh, and, and have it be addressed in an independent, meaningful way, for example. Or we can consider um, certain types of lawsuits, you know, that maybe other organizations couldn't. And so, um, 
yeah, I think I think what we discovered is that there was a way to actually walk that line, have two different brands. And certainly it's not a secret, you know, like we can be publicly affiliated. I can be publicly affiliated with both. In fact, I think, uh, I think just atonement ranks higher than my for-profit firm, which is, I mean, interesting. I would never have guessed that, but on Google, but, uh, and the partners felt more, most comfortable doing this as well. So I think that's how we kind of walk that balance and also figured out a, a, a form of social enterprise that worked for us, ultimately mm. having like two different, but affiliated entities. Right. So, you know, just getting into the specifics there a little bit, because I think this is interesting. It's you have two different entities where you feel like there are two different, you know, ways that you can contribute that actually buffer you from um, some of the the image concerns or the liability concerns of taking a stand on certain things, um, one organization versus the other. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. I mean, we wanted to keep the lines clear, not just on tags, but also on branding. I think that was important Mm -hmm. to us. I think what, what it boiled down to was like, the issues in each are just, from our perspective, uh, distinct. In my experience, building businesses, businesses can grow in ways that you may not anticipate and expect, uh, but you need to give them some room to, to do that. And I felt they would have basically their much more room to breathe and, and be experimental, and be creative um, if they weren't necessarily tied to each other. And, mm. and I think that, that approach has actually really worked out well for us. So, for example, Just Atonement does a lot of uh, internship programs you know and it's a great part of this ecosystem with law schools where law students come looking for 501c3 opportunities or opportunities with nonprofits to uh, and the schools can provide some funding for the students uh, to do that like living expenses and all the rest and um, I think that's appropriate I think that's appropriate to do through just atonement but it may not have made sense for us or we may not have had access to those resources as a for-profit firm you know Hmm. One of the big benefits is is giving it space to to breathe. You talked a little bit about what you've done with Just Atonement. What about the the corporate law side of things? How have you seen your practice evolve over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's definitely evolved. Um, when I started, it was uh, I was doing mostly working with startups, you know. And then as the as, the, as my own business matured, the nature of the problems became um, more complex. And also, we we just you know we we. I was able to work with more lawyers and now we have, you know, actually several lawyers at the practice. You know, it's, it's been really interesting to build our brand in this corporate law firm ecosystem. And where do we fit in, in this ecosystem? All the lawyers that we have are um, either former big law firm or uh, one uh, former government um, individual. And they're all fantastic, right? So I think what we, what we discovered our brand proposition was, was, that uh, we could provide the same level of service or, or even better, but certainly more responsive service to clients who couldn't get that you know, type of access at another type of law firm or who were looking for a place that was more efficient you know, from a billing perspective, for example. And uh, you, you know, we're very uh, open about the brand values that, um, that, we, that, we, that we focus on. You know, one of them is responsiveness. One is creativity. So we really pride ourselves on, on being able to write creative solutions, but also being objective. So we're not going to tell someone something just because it's going to make them feel good. <laughs> so we're going to provide honest feedback. And um, I think those are, those are, those are definitely three values uh, that we care a lot about. We just redid our um, firm bio. And the, the, the phrase that, stuck, that still sticks with me is, you know, working with smart creators who are um, mm-hmm. passionate about building businesses for the common good. It's like 
basically our the essence of our brand in like a phrase. And so, you know, our ideal clients are smart. They they create. So we want to work with people who are not destroyers, uh, but creators. That's actually very important to us. And mm. you know, at the end of the day, also people who are focused on um, knowing that their businesses are part of a larger economic system, social system, planetary system. Um, and so we, we, you know, focus on the common good at the end of the day. And, 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 and that, 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 that I think is like what we've discovered is our brand differentiator from all these other firms. Yeah. Your website, um, I think it says on there, some, uh, the, the, the language is about have taking a disruptive approach to corporate law mm-hmm. and that you guys move beyond the, the mold of the basic lawyer, quote mm. unquote, basic lawyer is what <laughs> right. you say. And so, uh, and so clearly, you know, you have some, some clear values about which, by which you operate and you have a clear understanding of what kind of clients and projects you want to take on. But what does that mean for how you con- like what you bring to the table and how you practice law? Like, yeah. what does it mean to not be a basic lawyer? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, um, to not come in with your like pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> you know? No, no. So, no, I mean, what that means, um, I think one of the things that we're most proud of or very proud of at the firm is, um, is the, the nature of the lawyers at the firm, you know, and, and by that, I think the lawyers themselves are these kind of smart creators who are considered mm-hmm. common good. And I'm not sure, I don't want to, you know, I'm, a lot of lawyers like that are out there. We, I'd love to meet more of them. I don't know if all lawyers like that are have those values. There's certainly a stigma with attorneys, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, it's, right? It's pretty wide, widely known. Yeah. So I think I think we we try to reflect those brand values ourselves. So, you know, just to give an example, you know, one of the lawyers at the firm, um, you know, has, has, a, has a, you know, did a tech startup before he started working at the company, at the, the firm, you know, and, um, and has done a lot of really interesting things in, in the art space. Uh, another lawyer um, who's affiliated with the practice is setting up their own venture capital fund. You know, another lawyer uh, teaches teaches at Berkeley. You know, mm-hmm. on, um, on on um, on data privacy. I think we've tried to create a nurturing space where lawyers who share those values can come and uh, have an economic foundation and have some economic security from the practice. But we also want to give people freedom. You know, to do the things that they wanted to do when they were lawyers. You know, and so I think that's definitely something that a lot of firms cannot say. And as a result, we were able to attract some really just awesome lawyers. You know, and mm. that's that's the difference. And so, and so for me, for example, you know, I get to I I kind of set the temperature by being able to spend a lot of time on my public interest work. You know, that uh, I'm not sure I would have an opportunity to do at any other firm. Uh, but we want to give we give all all the lawyers that, that option. And as a result, it attracts really ambitious, really smart, really creative, uh, really good hearted people. And so, and, and that's, that's what we mean by that is we've kind of created this, we've created at the firm, a ecosystem, our own ecosystem where we're cultivating those values and, and, uh, those values start to emerge in the lawyers themselves. And so that actually is a really important, um, product of the firm itself is like that 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 type of professional development I think is something I'm actually probably most proud of you know I just kind of being in the world of systems thinking one of the primary levers that you look at and how you impact 
how a system operates is the rules, mm-hmm. right? And and how those rules uh, are followed and how they come into fruition and things like that. And this idea, this word that you're using is for lawyers as creators. You know, I, I'm not sure that people would necessarily always look at lawyers or attorneys as creators, as their people that, that, that form the structure or like, you know, they're the ones that impose the limitations within or the safety, the safeguards or those kind of thing. But within that, there's also definitely like, I love that you've pointed out that there is a very strong point of creating because in creating those structures and in creating the laws and policies and structures around those rules, you are creating a dynamic that is really impactful. So I'm curious to hear if you have any examples of, you know, maybe your previous experience at a at the firm where you were working where you didn't have the freedom or flexibility to interpret law uh, in the way that you do versus now. Yeah, so um, that's a good question. I think the um, where it shows up the most, I would say it's come mostly from our clients because I think we are able, thankfully, to have some very interesting people come up, come to us with very challenging, complex problems, and then that gets our brains, you know, going as to how can we actually make this work. You know, mm. I mean, we have we have worked with hybrid structures before, and, and there's a lot of the same. You know, you have the set, you have the basic rules, right? You got the get your IRS regulations, you got corporate governance, you got all this stuff. Right. And then from those rules, you can create, um, you know, you can create something that's new and novel and that might work given the certain dynamics that are being uh, presented to you. We've done a lot of work, interesting work on securities, you know, mm. issues. Uh, we did a lot of work on blockchain in 2019, actually, and that was very interesting. Uh, less create, I mean, certainly creative, uh, we, we tended to give, um, there was not a lot of guidance at the time. Um, and so we get, we tended to give very, uh, conservative advice, which I'm very, very happy about, you know, (laughs) advice and I'm not in trouble for it. But, um, I I think a lot of it's client driven, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, we're able to kind of, um, put together, I mean, a lot of law practices put it this way is, um, form based, you know, there's like databases, legal databases that have forms or your firm has historic forms and mm. problem, you pull up the form, fill in the blanks and you charge a lot of money. You know, so that's a lot of legal practices. And so I think what, where, where we kind of deviated from that is telling people, look, we can move from the form, you know, we can absolutely do that because the form is based on laws. So if you just look at the laws, you go a layer, layer deeper, you can come up with your own form. Right. And I think mm. that, that maybe that's not revolutionary in other industries, but in law, that's actually, oh, my God, you're not going to use the form, you know, so. so. Well, it's certainly heavy lifting to, yeah. to to put that thought and intentionality into rethinking how has this been interpreted? Exactly. Because it is an interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, I think I think I think that's been like some place where we've, we've shown a lot of value. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, when we work with clients and even in our own firm, I mean, the culture, culture is like the atmosphere. It's like the river, and then you know the the rules or regulations you place are a little bit like the the otter, you know, or not the otter, <laughs> building like you know the the dam, you know, like but you know you can yeah. pose some structure, but ultimately the culture is the river, and uh, I think the, the you know the, the a good lawyer will know how to will be able to inspect the culture of, of the place and come up with. A set of documents that people are actually going to use, right? And that will be incorporated into the, the, the company's culture and, and, and from, from, you know, from there mm. on. So, 
So I, I think that, you know, having kind of, a, I guess that's that social science background that I had too, like being able to understand kind of deeper dynamics of, um, of how places are working and, and being able to, to, to draft around that. And so when you talk about some of these policies being relevant and something that people can use, I, I'm curious, what does that mean that, you know, why why would a policy or a rule be there if people aren't using it? Right. Yeah. So I mean that's pretty common actually. I mean one of the one area that I think um, we've done a lot of work on this is dispute resolution. Hmm. So um, you know a lot of uh, dispute resolution documents, a lot of employment documents, service provider documents, consulting agreements, they either say you know, you have to go to court, you know, if there's a dispute or you have to, uh, you can arbitrate, you know, or sometimes the good, the better ones will have like a mediation provision where you have to sit with somebody neutral. To, and I think one of the things that I've discovered, and I'm sure every lawyer could say the same thing, is that those are actually pretty clumsy tools. You know, a lot of disputes at a company are emotion-based, uh, personality-based, people have problems with each other, uh, that somehow like the grievances add up and all of a sudden you have, you know, have a dispute. And um, I mean, for sure, don't get me wrong. There are certainly bad examples too, where that's, there's a clear cut violation, but a, a lot of times there isn't, you know, a lot of times, or a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with co-founders or partners of a business, there's actually like good faith differences about how to run the business that mm-hmm. get translated into legal speak. Oh, well, you know, like, someone made a decision that differed from yours becomes mismanagement. Well, maybe they just had mm. a different decision or someone made a different decision that became a breach of a duty, for example, right? They were being negligent. Uh, but maybe they, like, a lot of business disputes are just good faith. People have different ideas about the way the business should be run, you know? So I think one of the things that we've done, we've tried to educate our clients and also do with our clients and paper with our clients is actually having a culture uh, where if there is like a good faith dispute, you know, have a process where someone can send a formal email, like a, an email address dedicated just to this. You can send an email and someone can say, I got a problem, <laughs> right? And then that triggers a process, a very low temperature process, but it's a different process that gets triggered. People can, you know, look at it. You can get an independent person involved at that point, but keep the temperature low early on and see if you can kind of resolve it that way. I mean, another example of this is in the remote learning a remote working environment you know people have people get dramatic over slack you know like there are slack disputes that break out people will text on slack and it just rubs someone the wrong way and uh people have different ways of communicating yeah and and that can actually explode that can absolutely explode you know in very similar ways so like having a procedure where you know you you stop don't go to the Slack. Stop using Slack, right? At least for like a day. Like, um, just get off the Slack. Just get off. And if you have if you communicate, go through a third party or like cool off and then like, you know, and if it's a real problem, if you really think there was harassment or discrimination involved or some type of law breaking, you know, then we can trigger a separate process to get a third party involved, you know, at the company or a real, you know, like a lawyer if we need it, you know. Um, that, that's been, I think a really concrete example of that is, is, um, the docs are, are clumsy. The traditional legal docs are just don't, they're just too, they're, they're too clumsy. Not every dispute has to end up in court. Right. And then number two, incorporating different processes that can help, um, manage at a lower temperature, some of these more common problems. It's, um, 
it's something that I don't think a lot of businesses or, or lawyers think about, but it's very, it's, it can be done and it can be done in a way that maps onto company culture, makes it a nicer place to work. Um, and you're also, you know, complying with legal obligations to have these types of processes. So, so I think that's a, that's a pretty good example I could give. Of, Just as a side note, are you actually helping, are you identifying where processes are necessary or are you helping kind of think through some of them? Just thinking through some of that. So I think, you know, the work that you're doing would be, you know, to, to actually identify processes. I mean, we're, we've been coming at it from a legal perspective, which is just to say, incorporate, like, come up with something just less uh, threatening than mm -hmm. every, every dispute goes to arbitration, you know? So, and what could that be? I mean, I think for a lot of companies, it's, you know, a lot of times people just want to be heard, you know, yeah. as people get a lawyer, a lot of times people get a lawyer because they haven't felt heard. And so if you provide a mechanism where people can feel heard, you know, you might be able to resolve it before it, it gets um, miscommunicated or mis misconstrued in, in different ways. Now, I, I mean, this isn't going to work in a totally toxic environment, right? So yeah. if the environment is completely out of control, or if there is actual like serious wrongdoing or serious harassment, I mean, nothing like this. At the same time, though, I mean, having, I think that would still help because someone can a lot of companies differ in their compliance, right? Uh, I think the better approach is to have at least a mechanism where someone can initially complain and there's a record of it and say, look, I'm being harassed. So-and-so did this on this date, totally out of control, needs to stop. And that, go, yeah. that should trigger some process where the GC or someone can get notice of it. You may not know. I mean, like, oh, there's a problem, right? So, yeah. so I mean, like building those kind of processes is like a lot of organizations don't do that. They feel like, uh, from the way you're talking about it, it's like almost like pressure valves, right? Like yeah. something, pressure's building and there needs to be an escape for that pressure and, and, and also not just an escape for that pressure, place for it to go, but um, for it to, to notify of it, you know? And if you don't have those in place, then then you ultimately result to, resort to much bigger, more complicated uh, approaches. And yeah, more expensive. Some, yeah. yeah, more expensive, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> So you've been in law and you've practiced in, you know, a range of different scenarios and, and contexts uh, for the last 15 years. I'm one, and, you know, we've seen a lot of change in business mm. and what people think the role of business is over the last 15 years. Uh, and I'm curious to see what have you noticed evolve in your work with your customers, mm. what they, what they're looking to you for. I think compliance has actually gotten better. Honestly, you know, I think that there are definitely business attitudes about compliance have gotten, I think, much better, I would say. And there is definitely a wider recognition of the importance of KYC, you know, your customer um, of um, appropriate controls. And I think people get bad people, a lot of people get, get caught, you know, <laughs> I think that's the thing. I mean, the blockchain phenomenon and craze of 2019 is a great example where for that year in that industry, a lot of people thought anything goes, and that's now it's like uh, the government came back hard, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And um, in terms of harassment and discrimination, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, there's so much work that has to get done, and there are terrible examples of, of um, toxic cultures at places that maybe people don't even expect, right? But, and there's a lot of introspection that needs to happen, in particular in tech. But I would say that I guess it's not a surprise is when this stuff emerges where maybe it used to be. And, uh, you know, logging changed, right? So California just passed that board, uh, board composition bill. 
Mm. requires you know boards to to be more diverse uh the eu has added uh dramatically to corporate regulation in terms of both data privacy and now human rights so i think compliance is actually uh evolving you know Mm. i'm not sure i could say that that would actually be a surprise to me (laughs) years ago to predict that but um i think there is an understanding that work there has to be some dignity at work you know um Mm. debate about um in California about Prop 22, you know, and I know that the ballot went a certain way or whatever it was, but, you know, it's, we've never had that debate about dignified work and mm-hmm. irrespective of, of where you were on that ballot proposition. Prop 22 was as freelance workers, like the Uber right. conversation, right? Freelance workers for, just for in the, in the drive, in the drive app industry, right? So I think yeah. it's limited just to that industry, right? But, um, yeah, I think that the, that space is opening up. I think there's more of a concept of like work needs to be a place where we can at least um, not have to be subject to toxicity, you know, in, in interpersonal relationships. And in the U.S. in particular, we don't have a common culture, right? There's no real common culture like there are in other countries or mm. that share historical, you know, connections going back hundreds of years amongst populations. And you know, work is in, in a lot of ways or probably the most common culture we have. I mean, and maybe that's uh, yeah. why we focus on it so heavily. Yeah. Yeah. Partly, partly. Yeah. So I think, I think that's good. I mean, I, I think that, um, I think there's, a, there's lots of work to get done and there's no shortage of um, injustice at workplaces, but I think that there is at least a growing, you know, wherever you are in the corporate org chart. I mean, I think, um, you get you have a sense that hey this is this should this shouldn't this shouldn't I shouldn't have to put up with this you know so so that must mean that there's just in that increase in engagement around compliance that there's more opportunities to engage with people like you than there might have been before before you're thinking mergers and acquisitions or bigger kind of things and here maybe there's more opportunities to engage with lawyers about what what compliance what uh, policies do for an organization's culture, right? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think that uh, there are certainly ways that lawyers can add a lot of value to that discussion. Um, I think most people, I think a lot of people um, are still, like like everything in life, I think there's a psychological bias that it isn't a problem until you know, something terrible happens and then it's a problem, <laughs> you gotta fix it, right? So there's still more focus on, it's still, you know, as lawyers, we can see the things down the road that are coming that, you know, we can advise, but a lot of people are like, we'll deal with it when it's a, pro- a real problem because there's other priorities at a business, right? But I do think that lawyers can have a, a lot of value in terms of that compliance discussion and also creating the culture of compliance. I think that's really important is creating the culture of compliance where any person can feel comfortable saying, hey, I actually don't know if this is compliant with our internal policies and law and, you know, sub- you know utilizing a procedure you might have at a company to, like you said, to... to you know, like blow the whistle or, I mean, maybe not, you know, or to like, or to at least flag the issue, um, yeah. you know, so that someone can look at it and, and make a determination. Uh, I think that that's actually, I, I think that's something that every company should do. And it starts from the, the board all the way down is creating that culture of compliance. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think lawyers can add value. I think people like you can have like a tremendous amount of value mm-hmm. and, um, uh, because um, I think, I think people should feel safe at work. You know, people should feel 
like work is a safe place. I mean, and if the workplace doesn't feel safe, that's a terrible indictment of the company. I would say also, you know, from a psychological perspective, right? Um, you know, maybe back in the 50s when we were talking about like factory, just kind of repetitious kind of things needed to be made, but, you know, Ford style production factories. But nowadays we can't just, we can't just like re- repetitiously do our jobs without right. thinking about it. Right. And you need people to come up with contextually relevant, thoughtful, creative, intentional responses to things. And when you don't feel safe, like think of any micromanagement scenarios, like when you don't feel safe, you don't get the most out of the person. They're so limited. Right. Um, and that safety, ultimately, you know, if you're creating a culture culture of that, making people feel that they have a culture of respect and safety and clear guidelines around what's a good way to operate within the workplace, I can just see from a psychological perspective what that means for what you can produce as a company. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. I think that, there, unfortunately, there are a lot of companies that still view people as disposable. And so mm. you extract someone like a like a orange, you know, put some, get the juice out of them, toss away the orange, and then you get this conveyor belt of, you know, Valencia oranges or whatever it is, whatever the juicing oranges are, right? But I mean, we're, we're in a shift, right? We're in a shift from that style of work to a different mode of operating. And it's not just like this, like, like meta whimsical idea of a shift of a mode of operating. It's like the technologies that we're using require different things of humans, Mm. And the things, the value that humans bring to the table are in these spaces where we have to think contextually and create some intentional outcome, right? Like it's it's like you're connecting the dots. There's a lot more complexity to what we're working on now. And so you can't just like the, com- the companies that are considering their their employees as a resource that you just kind of squeeze the most out of <laughs> are really are really missing the boat. I think so. I mean, I, I think I think I treat I think about it like nature. I mean, like. Like we're all in an ecosystem and companies, some companies are going to outcompete other companies. And what, yeah. what's the hypothesis as to which companies are going to be more successful than others? My hypothesis is that groups that are cooperative and work together and create a culture of safety and, um, um, you know, um, uh, creative, not, not, not creative expression. Yeah, I want to say yeah. more like, you know, also some fulfillment, you know, people are mm. happy to work on these projects um, you know, is going to be a, a workplace that's happier, more productive. Uh, people are going to be more loyal, you know, more willing to stick it out through good times and bad times. Um, then, you know, people really underestimate too in complex organizations, the role that institutional mem- institutional memory is critical. So when people leave, mm. the develop institutional memory, you never develop memory in the organization about how problems have been successfully managed and addressed in the past, uh, you don't have the battle scars, right? And um, I think all that, I, I, my view is that economically speaking, my prediction, my, my prediction is that um, things are going to become more certain, uncertain, generally speaking, economically, yeah. politically, socially, environmentally. We're headed yeah. towards, in my view, historic uncertainty. And looking to nature, I mean, those organisms that are, can be flexible, can adapt, you know, um, uh, have better morale. I mean, those are going to be the organizations that I think ultimately survive. So a lot of this is like a basic survival strategy, but I I mean, there's also the moral component, which I also believe in strongly, which is that I just think morally, this is the way companies should work. Like it should be company, 
employees should be treated fairly and should feel good about working there, right? Like, I don't think that's like, but, you know, believe it or not, a lot of people, some people don't think, don't think like that. So, um, but, but I love the word you used about adapting and the, the uncertainty. And it makes me think about law again. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we look at law as solid, unchanging, permanent, mm-hmm. uh, and like forever is, is, is what it is. Right. And it's like, how do you, like we are, this is one of the fundamental premises under which I work is that, that change is the norm. And the, the sooner we learn to adapt and like increase everyone's capacity to change for change, um, the better off we'll be. So what does that mean for, for an organization and their policies, right? Like, have you been dealing with that at all? At like, okay, things are changing. We need to revisit this. Yeah. So the, I mean, the whole shift to work from home, you know, mm. and it just, it boils down again to like the clients, right? Some clients are more just keen on that or have a better sense of how this is going to affect everything. And some clients, you know, still haven't gotten the memo. Right. But but I think that, you know, we've certainly for our clients, we've all offered the ability to use a um, set of like um, what we call uh, online infrastructure management, you know, because every company has their own online infrastructure, whether it's, you know, the, the applications they use, the, the, meet, the intercommunication channels like Slack or whatever. Slack's popular, you know, but, yeah. you know, there's all sorts of SaaS platforms out there that people use for their online infrastructure. And so, you know, we uh, we certainly educated our clients on. Uh, security practices for online infrastructure, you know, um, because there's a lot of IP. There can be a lot of really important IP on these places that you don't want people walking away with. Um, and, and also how people, like making sure that people have a way to, you know, um, manage personality issues, um, that they're not, you know, that, that small things aren't getting overblown. Um and, you know, back in the day, the online infrastructure might have just been your intranet and email, right? But now it could be like five or six different applications, you know, mm-hmm. and it could have all sorts of like really important company IP everywhere. So, you know, also making sure that clients know how to turn all that stuff off when someone, you know, leaves or is terminated. Um, I mean, that's that's certainly something that this year has really brought forth dramatically. And And yeah, I mean, you can... Uh, we, we do have like kind of like we have a new policy paradigm that we've built around that around online what we call distributed team management you know uh, how how clients can, can manage distributed teams but some clients are super interested and, and some clients aren't so it's like you know it's the old saying about leaving the horse to the water right so, right. so yeah some some yeah. I mean not every organization is going to be responsive yeah I mean I just think that you know we operate a lot under precedent and a lot of times precedent is less and less relevant. Yeah. We're going in a totally different way of working. Right. So, um, you know, one more question before we wrap up. Um, so, you know, I think this all really pertains to this conversation or that we're seeing is that a lot more companies are hiring chief ethics officers or Mm. ethics roles. Right. And a lot of times we see them filled by lawyers. Like what are your, what's your perspective on these roles? Do you think that Lawyers are best suited for these roles. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's a good question. I don't know if they're best suited. I mean, I think, um, I mean, the role of a chief ethics officer is it's 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 like it's in development, right? So we'll see how important. Um, hmm. You know, well, we advise our clients value different. You know, we have we're lucky to work with value different value driven companies, and so what we what we um, 
ask our clients to do a lot of times is to write down not just their values, um, you know, but also to have like kind of, you know, a firm manifesto if they're comfortable doing that. And it could be as simple as like 500 words, you know, Mm. like, you know, something dramatic. But, um, but if you, if you Google like company manifesto or design manifesto, I mean, you'll see some really powerful precedents out there. Um, and, and the nice thing about a manifesto is something that, um, uh, everyone can read at the company. Right. And so, mm. you know, this is what we believe in. This is, um, and, and so I think, I think the role, you know, I think the role person has to be able to incorporate company values, kind of basic human decency, you know, law, right. So to the extent that there are fiduciary duties or corporate duties involved, I think that's very important. Um, and I think also be able to ma- set up a good process because mm. not ethical, you know, someone's ethics is going to be like ethics can differ. Right. And uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, there are some people who deeply believe in the concept of an of a individual freedom means no government regulation. Right. So and they, they they're honest, fervent believers in that. And, um, you know, any regulation is an affront to uh, individual freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. How do you like the ethics of that person, which is a good faith ethical belief? You know, whether or not you agree with it, it's there's you know, John Stuart Mill, there's like a tradition for it. You know, that's right. really different than an ethical structure that that says that maybe interpersonal conduct should be regulated because we have to um, protect people who maybe can't speak up for themselves, right? That there are mm. people because of generational trauma or current trauma uh, or through economic um uh, you know, economic problems or economic histories, you know, are, are, are not as capable of manifesting their point of view or sticking up for themselves. And so government or company policy should play a role in making sure those voices are heard. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, those are totally, those are kind of incompatible. Right. So, so <laughs> I think that, you know, where does an ethics officer come down on that? I think, I mean, you know, I think it's at least, you know, being able to point to the manifesto of the company. I think companies should take, the company probably has to take a stance on that, right? The company has mm. to develop its own ethical system about how people, um, you know, emerge from that that's in good faith. Um, and, and like any other company benefit, I think, becomes part of the values of working at a place or the benefit of working at a place versus not, right? So, you know, you want to work at Spacely Sprockets because, you know, they, their ethical system, which they have on their manifesto, which is public, is attractive to you um, and and uh, you align with those values. So, you know, we um, I think that and, you know, sometimes companies come to us that are struggling, you know, with employee retention, um, customer, you know, uh, retention. And one of the things we encourage them to do is they'll think about your values and maybe maybe it's time to re-manifest you know, the company and the company, I mean, brand remanifestation is not a new thing, but how about your value and ethical and, and kind of culture manifestation in the company? Yeah. And maybe now's the time to redo all that and, and make it an interesting, innovative place to work. And, you know, so I think, I think the role, um, I guess it's a lot like, um, you know, a lot of other C-suite officer roles that when they were first created, I know there's a there's chief diversity officers now at companies as well um you know and i think i think um you know making sure that for them to be effective they need to have they need to understand the company's values so that's important they need to be have a real seat at the table um and have their input heard at at, at any you know c-suite meeting and, and being taken into consideration 
and uh, I think staying consistent, you know, and making sure that that consistency aligns with not just corporate fiduciary duties, but with the company's values. And um, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of how like a company's ethical system will, will start to build up over time. One thing that I've taken away from just listening to you talk about your experience is also just like humanizing law. Mm. Right. For, for them, it's like something that's very clear in your practice is that you really do humanize law. Um, and that's got to be, a, to me, that seems like uh, a central part of that to be, you know, it, it's not removed. It's not some abstract practice. It's it's very tangibly felt at a foundational level for the people involved, impacted by those policies. Yeah. I, think that's I mean, the, honestly, the most fulfilling parts, I mean of being a lawyer or, or, or the day-to-day, I mean, really the human impact. I mean, for me, the things I always remember are like, you know, you know, sometimes you'll have a, sometimes you'll work on a matter or have an opportunity to go to court. Maybe you'll have like mediation with a judge and like, you know, you're in some really old federal courthouse and, you know, like the judge shows up in his robes or her robes. And maybe there's a clerk and you have like a pretty honest discussion. I mean, those are actually, for me, it's like, that's, that's the humanization of law right there. You got the mm. finder, the decision maker, sitting there in their robe. You know, they're, they're talking to you, and those 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 moments are very powerful. So, yeah, I mean, to the extent that companies can provide, but again, you know, for for good, I mean, these these are all just tools, right? And you could imagine a more dramatic or more, um, you could imagine a very rules based workplace that uh, was was crippling to the human spirit. You know, so I mean, mm. like, yeah. Um, I think I think like everything, they have to be. Um, the ultimate value should be, in my view, you know, creating a place for human dignity to thrive. I mean, ultimately, mm. and if, if if a workplace can't provide that, then I mean, there is yeah, some deep questions about that workplace. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, from just our conversation, it's just inspiring to hear how you are approaching your practice and uh, making the subtle but impactful changes to it. Um, so I've enjoyed that. Um, to wrap up, the question I often ask is if there are any um, books or podcasts or articles that you would recommend that people read. Uh, it can be about law. It can be about business. Whatever you feel like is pertinent mm. um, to the conversation around the conversation we've had today. So the one thing I'm reading every day, actually, is I have an electronic copy of the Tao Te Ching. And mm. every day I read a verse. And... Uh, and it is really actually very inspiring. And I really, I really, I really, really enjoy reading it. It's a totally different perspective on um, how to live life. There are verses about for leaders, for, com- for country leaders. There are like a series of chapters about how a, a leadership in a country should govern. And mm. I think those verses are very profound and apply to any organization. I mean, there's a real subtlety to, to the philosophy and about letting things, you know, being the stone that the river, you know, kind of shapes versus trying to shape right. your own stone. But I think the, um, um, yeah, I think there's a whole, there's a whole kind of, the, one of the big themes running through it, I would say, is this concept of creating the space for people mm. to thrive, creating the space for circumstances to emerge, you know, creating Carnegie Hall so that musicians show up right i mean i think that there's a lot there's a lot of that theme in, in it and uh and but yeah i think that would be that's i think it's a really fascinating philosophy to consider in organization building that's a really good suggestion well i really enjoyed chatting today and there it was uh just great to to talk to you and to learn about your perspective and your approach to law and what you're doing 
Thanks a lot, Lauren. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's wearewhole.co. If you enjoy this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too. 